Hello, friends. This is Gracie Christie, and this is Conversations with Consequences, your weekly show of scintillating conversation. If you're listening on the radio, we are on Guadalupe Radio Network, Fridays at 11 a.m. If you're not listening on the radio, you're listening to our podcast. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm joined in studio by my colleague at the Catholic Association, Andrea picciotti Bayer. Good morning, Andrea. Good morning, Gracie. And we also have our other colleague, Maureen Ferguson. Good morning, Maureen. Good morning, all. So there's three of us today in studio, and we have a special guest today who will be joining us in a couple minutes. His name is Chris Scalia. Yes, Scalia. You recognize the name. He's the eighth of Antonin Scalia's nine children, our late Supreme, our late Supreme Court Justice. And he edited a book along with Ed Whalen on, uh, it's called On Faith, Lessons from an American Believer, and it's a collection of speeches, opinions, and articles uh, of his father's, and also reminiscences from his law clerks and friends, and I think also a homily from his funeral. That's right, Um, because Father, or Justice Scalia's son, Father Paul Scalia, was one of the priests celebrating the Mass and gave the most incredible homily. I was blessed to be there for it. It was incredibly memorable and just so beautiful. So I can't wait to ask Chris a little bit about that. You know, one thing that I love about um, this book and the first book that Chris and Ed put together is it's dedicated to Chris's mom, Maureen. And she sits on uh, at the same pew that I sit at every morning for daily mass and she's lovely and delightful and charming and it touches my heart as a mother to see um, such a dedication and and it really is a good reminder um, of how important moms are in the lives of of their kids. Well I don't have any personal connections to our late justice. I have met Chris in in a coffee shop. I believe I met him one time in a coffee shop and but I do understand that um our late justice had a tremendous impact on on American jurisprudence, the way that the United States understands itself and its and the way the government relates on religious liberty issues and 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 the role of religion in society. So I think that this is a is a wonderful book. I know it's a wonderful book. I've read it, and it really addresses questions that are t- important to all of us, whether or not we have these personal connections to the wonderful Scalia family. Right, and, and I really thought this was just such an extraordinary book. Um, I think we all know his public persona and have watched him uh, with delight for years, um, during his 30 years on the bench. Um, but this book is so unique in the personal insights that, it's, that it offers. Um, it just gives an incredible insight to Antonin Scalia, the man, and I just found it to be a really, really beautiful book and so just personally inspiring. So with that, let me introduce Chris Scalia. He is, as I said before, the eighth of Justice Scalia's nine children, and he is now the director of academic programs at the American Enterprise Institute, and he's been kind enough to join us today. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Thank you all very much for having me. I, were your ears burning, burning when yeah. we were talking about your wonderful, <laughs> your wonderful work editing this great Thank book? Thank you very much. Yes, yeah, so Maureen was especially touched uh, by all of this. I think she mentioned being at his funeral. 
but maybe you can start off with that, Maureen. Right, and I'm I'm blessed to know a little bit uh, you and and some of your siblings. Um, and as I said, I've long admired, um, been an admirer of your father from a distance in, in knowing his public persona. But, but this book was so personal. So we're really, we just feel so blessed to have you with us today because not only is this book a collection of his speeches, uh, but it has many personal reflections from people who knew him well, his law clerks, friends, fam- mm-hmm. family members. Maybe you could start off by telling us just a little bit about how this book came together, because there's there's good story behind that. Yeah, it, this was a collection um, kind of in keeping with an idea my father had, um, and he was working on a project a little bit like this before he passed away. Um, one of the uh, one of the brief reflections that we included in this book was by uh, a lawyer named Greg Grimsel who met my father and um, my f- to whom my father gave basically a draft collection of a book a lot like this just a, a collection of speeches he delivered about uh, about religious belief and his faith and the role of Ameri- of religion in the American public square and um, and in the Constitution so uh, Greg Grimsel read over this draft and took a lot of care with it and sent sent my father back uh, some thoughts about it um, in, in a big bound collection. Mm-hmm. And he sent it, uh, my father gave it to him in I think August 2015, and Mr. Grimsel sent it back to my father the day before my father passed away in uh, February 2016. So, um, you know, it was something he was cooking up late in his life. and. Uh, Ed and I kind of wanted to pursue that. Uh, we, we had uh, published a, or co-edited a, uh, another collection of his works, a much broader collection that touched on all sorts of topics uh, a couple of years ago. But this one is just about um, religious issues and his religious belief. And again, a lot of uh, reminiscences from people who knew him. And I think the people I've talked to about this collection, really they, they appreciate my father's speeches too. Uh, of course, but they really appreciate the kind of personal reflections from people who knew my father because it was um, they were getting so much insight they didn't have before. It's kind of a 360-degree view of my father's religious ideas and beliefs. Um, so uh, Justice Thomas writes uh, a forward to the collection. My brother, uh, Father Paul Scalia, uh, you guys mentioned the homily he delivered at the funeral mass. That's in here, but so is an introduction that my, my brother wrote. And my sister Mary also has a reflection in here, too, as well as other things from, from law clerks. Chris, mm-hmm. besides, besides a labor of love mm-hmm. to put this together and highlight your father's uh, really deep relationship to, to the faith and, and, and his impact, what, what do you think this book adds to the American conversation on faith? I think probably, you know, to the, the broad um, American political conversation or legal conversation, a point that my father wanted to make and did make again and again in his opinions was that uh, the Constitution opens up a large space for religion mm. in the public square. And he was very concerned with the move the Supreme Court had been taking uh, since the 1960s to kind of close off that square. Um, And in particular, the court did this by saying um, that the government had to be impartial uh, between religion and irreligion, Mm -hmm. whereas the founders believed that 
uh, the government could not endorse a specific religion, but encourage religion by kind of, um, for example, uh, politicians mentioning God in speeches or having um, religion mentioned in public monuments and things like that. Um, and my father was concerned that, that that idea, that notion was being closed off. He, the point he made again and again is that the founders believed religion is an important source of virtue for the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a democracy, you need virtuous people. And so when the government closes off that sort of religious expression in the public square, it closes off a source of virtue. It essentially discourages religious belief. And he thought that that would have... Uh, Impoverishing the whole country. Yeah, exactly. That, that would have a bad, uh, con- bad consequences for the democracy. Chris, now, as the lawyer of the group, it's going to seem strange, but I want to ask a question that has nothing to do about the law, <laughs> but is very much in the book and, and that I thought... Uh, was was quite touching, and you you referenced it, uh, the foreword written by Justice Thomas, and the prior book had a foreword also written by a sitting Supreme Court justice, Justice Ginsburg, and two very, very different people um, with different ideologies, but sharing not just their positions on the court, but also a dear friendship with your dad. And um, in the book, you can see kind of running through the importance not only of family, which we want to talk about later, but also friendship. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the lessons that you learned observing this friendship that your dad had with these luminaries of the law. Well, the the friendship with Justice Ginsburg, I think, surprises people the most just because they are so uh, so dissimilar and kind of an odd couple, almost like a sitcom I, friendship. I agree. I'm very yeah. surprised. I'm very surprised but, when I hear about that. But they had uh, their friendship goes way back. I think they first met in the late 70s, and then they were on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals together. And they liked each other as colleagues, for one thing. Um, they appreciated that uh, the other was willing to engage with ideas and kind of help help the other with their opinions, even if they ended up disagreeing with them. Mm -hmm. And that was not a lot of judges then, or at least their peers on the D.C. Circuit at that time, really were willing to do that. So they they appreciated that. They they enjoyed each other as colleagues, even if they often disagreed. But as far as their friendship goes, they had a lot in common. Um, I think, I suspect that a lot of their friendship was kind of based on the fact that they grew up in New York around the same time that she's a couple years older than my dad, um, and they grew up in different boroughs, but they grew up in New York City around the same time. Um, and they were both lovers of opera. Um, Marty Ginsburg, her husband, was an excellent cook, and my father really liked to eat. So that, that was a good connection. Well, all Italians yeah, like to that, eat. That, that is true. And, um, and my mom was, uh, my mom and Marty and, and Justice Ginsburg got along very well, too. So it was, you know, it was a, a four-way friendship, I, you know, not just my dad and Justice Ginsburg, but the two, the, those two couples together. And, um, and she, my, my dad made her laugh. Uh, she said uh, that, you know, th- there were a couple of people in her life that, she, that could 
regularly make her laugh and one of them was her husband and the other was my dad you know your father's wit and his sort of generally jolly nature it it sort of runs through the course of this book I mean Mm -hmm. I found myself laughing out loud reading some of these excerpts and you know it's interesting because sometimes or often even really brilliant people can be rather dull on the personality Mm -hmm. side but your father had it all I mean he was just hilarious there were so many funny things in this book And um, maybe we could touch upon a few of the speeches. Um, We three moms here have college-age children, so Mm -hmm. I was quite struck with his speech at Catholic University about the purpose of a Catholic university in an increasingly secular society. And um, uh, he, he was really pushing the idea that the task of a Catholic university is not just to teach their students to think well, but to live virtuously. And that part of the task of a Catholic university is moral formation, um, since college students are still young and impressionable. So I wonder if you want to expound upon that at, at all. He, you know, he had a couple of funny cracks about uh, those of us sitting in the pews all are aware of the annual collection for Catholic yeah. University, and he <laughs> That's right. talked about how he would give or not give depending on which media theologian was dissenting hey, that, that year. That's right. And he has a great joke about um, Catholic schools need to be more than just a resource for reporters to go to when they're looking for somebody to disagree with the Pope. Okay, um, I, I howled at that yeah. one. <laughs> what a scream! My father comes back to. Uh, this idea in a lot of his speeches, which is that Catholics specifically and Christians in general and religious believers in general need to accept the fact that they are not going to fit in Mm -hmm. with the culture at large. They need to accept the fact that they will be different. And in the the case of of Catholic university in any Catholic school, but especially Catholic university because it's called Catholic university Mm -hmm. um, and has a kind of special status, they can't try to do all of the same things. There's necessarily going to be a limit on what they teach. Um, like a Catholic ha- hospital can't do certain things. Um, uh, and he tells a funny story about how much he had uh, he he uh, he did something. He visited BYU to deliver a lecture or something like that, and was describing just how you know how much he admired the place, how much he liked it there. But it would be really difficult for him to actually work there because they were so. It's such a Mormon place, and he would have had to sneak his cigarettes and sneak his yeah. coffee, and he, he <laughs> and um, alcohol. I yeah, suppose he liked yeah, wine. Yeah, well, that too, but not during the workday. <laughs> um, uh, but so he would have to. Uh, he would have to. He had it emphasized when he was at BYU that it was a Mormon place, and mm-hmm. kind of he wanted, he expected, and emphasized that Catholic schools should be doing something similar, and and they they had to re- they had to. Im- embrace the difference to a degree. They didn't have to love the fact that secular culture was the way it was, but they had to recognize that they would be different. And individual Catholics and Christians needed to recognize that same difference. You know, speaking of capacity to be different in society, I was also struck by the speech he gave to a group of students at Georgetown on the importance of making an annual retreat. Mm-hmm getting away from the noise. And, and this speech he gave, you know, many years ago before the iPhone uh, created so much more noise culturally. Uh, you know, we all struggle to get away from that kind of noise. But um, but he talked about how the retreat he made as a senior in high school at Xavier mm-hmm. uh, Academy in New York, um, that was the most important retreat he said he took because he said he would discern whether he would go into the seminary or off to 
college and enter mm-hmm. the world as a layman. He found his gifts as a layman were mm-hmm. um, probably calling him to to enter the world and and thank God he had that clear discernment on retreat. But anyway, but I thought his point there was just so important. And he says that you'll lose your soul. Um, you'll forget who you are if you don't get away from the noise. And, and, and this quote struck me in particular. He said, if you don't have a weekend to spare once a year mm-hmm. to think exclusively about the things that really matter, well, you haven't planned your life correctly. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a great line. And it's, it's bracing, too. I mean, it's, Is it, it ever? It, it, if, Challenging. He can, if he can do it, I was going to say, if, if, if the justice of the Supreme Court with yeah. nine children can take a weekend yeah. away to think about the transcendent, then I think all of us can, right. can do the same. Um, and I think his his uh, his hunting trips kind of served the same purpose. They weren't technically weren't religious retreats, but they were opportunities for him to get away from the noise and to pray the rosary and mm-hmm. um, and and find some sort of tranquility. When he would come home from those annual retreats, would he speak with you about them? He he exemplified a quiet but somehow mm-hmm. very firm faith, and I'm just curious yeah, to just, hear your perspective as a son on that. Just in in general, he wouldn't. Um, he rarely lectured us about religion, um, and as a result, the conversations we had about them stuck with us. I think a little bit more. Um, there, I, I think Paul describes this this episode or mentions it in his introduction. But when we were growing up. Um, we went to mass at a, at the beach, and it was kind of this less of a church and more of an amphitheater. And in the back, there there was basically the church ended and sand began, and we were playing in the sand during mass and during mm. the consecration. Goodness. And, and afterwards, my father <laughs> told us why that was a bad thing, um, and he didn't he didn't explain it in terms of his personal connection to the Eucharist. He described it as what mass is about. Um, and it was a really, I still remember it, and both of my brothers remember it, and I think it was a really important episode for Paul in particular. So um, he, would, he would choose his moments, and as a result, they were, they were very effective and, and, and powerful. You know, one of the testimonies in the book from his, one of his law clerks, uh, Patrick Schlitz, I believe was his name, talks about the impact of attending one mass with your dad mm-hmm. and how that really actually transformed his entire faith because he had had this sort of casual understanding mm-hmm. of the Eucharist until the point at which he attended mass with your dad and was just so struck with the intensity of prayer at the moment of the consecration. Yeah. And uh, do you want to elaborate on that? No, that that struck me too. And I think a couple of people in this collection mentioned it too. My father, uh, when he prayed, it was a very, very intense manner of prayer. His his eyes closed, his head bowed, and his his hands folded. Um, There's a great picture of him. It's kind of hard to find, but if, if you look long enough on the internet, you'll find a picture of him during a red mass um, where he's hunched over the pews, the pew, and um, in, in prayer, and Chief Justice Rehnquist is next to him, and Rehnquist is looking at him as if, you know, my dad isn't feeling well or something. It's, <laughs> he's um, it's, just, a, it's just such an intense uh, manner of prayer. And my father was, uh, you know, he was very demonstrative during Mass. If the priest said something silly, during the sermon, my father would grumble. If there was a bad song that he, did, a hymn he didn't want to sing, he would grumble. But if, at the same time, if there was a great he sermon, he he would he let you know <laughs> it too. And if there was a wonderful hymn, he would sing along very loudly. Um, oh. 
And it was uh, be, be, but he had a great voice, a, a right? Kid. I mean, he had a good. <laughs> he did have a good voice, yeah. Um, I think when, a loud voice too. <laughs> I think when people see a powerful man bowing before a greater power, it makes a, a make mm. makes a big impact. I think that's right. Well, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences, and we'll be right back after our break with Chris Scalia. And we're back. This is Conversations with Consequences, and I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, joined in studio today by my colleagues Maureen Ferguson and Andrea Picciotti-Bayer, and also by a very special guest, Chris Scalia, the son of our late Justice Antonin Scalia, who has edited a wonderful book uh, called On Faith, Lessons from an American Believer, a collection of essays, speeches, opinions, and articles also, uh, from our late justice, and reminiscences from his law clerks. And we are having a wonderful discussion about um, uh, Justice Scalia's impact on the idea of the public square and religion, liber religious liberty, and um, also just his, his great personal impact on, on so many people's lives. And Maureen, who has made a deep study of the book, um, wants to turn to which essay now? Well, what, I was so moved uh, by the testimony from the law clerks, from mm -hmm. several different law clerks. Mm -hmm. And one was just an amu amusing illustration of how he sort of both subtly and not so subtly exercised his faith and outreach mm -hmm. towards those around him. Um, uh, so there's one written by a former clerk called A.J. Balia, which... Mm -hmm rhymes with Scalia. That's right. <laughs> um, so I, that's the only way I knew how to pronounce it. But um, he talks about how it was one of his first days on the job, and uh, his phone rings. Hello? Hello, he realizes it's Justice Scalia, the first time he's interacted on his um, you know, first few days on the job. And uh, Justice Scalia said to him, what did, what's today? And he's thinking, uh, what's today? You know, it's Friday. <laughs> um, it's August 15th. And then all of a sudden he realizes, wow, I wonder if he's assuming I'm Catholic. It's the Feast of the Assumption. So he kind of goes out on a limb and says, well, Justice, it's the Feast of the Assumption. And the reply on the other end of the phone line is just noon, meaning we'll go to noon mass together. Mm -hmm. oh. Just such a neat little story. Yeah, my dad made a, an assumption about the assumption, and, and it turned out well. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he, I mean, I, th I think that's just, it's a great approach, isn't it? He's, he, he didn't say, he, I, I, AJ mentions this in, in his brief essay that, you know, maybe my, my dad just concluded that because AJ's last name rhymed with dad's, uh, that meant he was Catholic too. And, you know, he just... And if, if A.J. didn't say the assumption, Dad would just – and had just said Friday, um, Dad would just say – would have just said something like, oh, okay, thanks, just wanted to make sure, you know, something like that. But it was just kind of a, um, an innocuous way, subtle way of, of um, finding out if they wanted to go to – and encouraging him to, to go to Mass too, or even reminding him that they mm -hmm. had to go to Mass. Um, and this goes back to something I was saying last segment, that my father – um, you know, I said he kind of chose his moments. He didn't lecture you all the time. I and mean, this, this is a similar thing. He didn't, he didn't talk about, I think people, especially his detractors, assume that he was insistent on his imposing his religion on other people. But that's not really how he operated, certainly at a personal level. Um, Justice Thomas mentions it, too. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't evangelize um, directly uh, 
very often. The most significant form of evangelization he performed was just by uh, by going to Mass. Um, his and personal by, example. Yeah, his personal example. How so he an, integrated an, yeah. his religious life into a, a, a busy public right, exactly. service. Right, exactly. And, and so, and Dad knew that he was a visible Catholic, and that's one of the reasons he spoke as often as he did about religion, mm-hmm. because he, he kind of saw that people would look up to him, people of faith uh, would want advice on how to um, model their own lives, but also people who were s- skeptics would want uh, or appreciate some explanation of, of why he did what he did. And if so many Americans find living a coherent Catholic or other religious life in, the, in our secular society, if, mm-hmm. if we all find it so difficult, I can imagine yeah. that a, a pr- looking up to somebody like Justin, like, like yeah. your father, um, was, was a great explanation of how to do that with yeah. confidence. One Chris, it, oh, Chris one of the things that um, I was struck by, and it's, it's pretty early on in the book, was the inclusion of a prayer written by St. Ignatius. And, and it's a, perhaps you can talk a little bit about the prayer and its significance in your dad's life. Um, and, and it's a nice surprise to me um, because Justice Scalia is you know, at the top of his game in the legal world, very well uh, respected and regarded. And this prayer is a little window into his understanding of the interior life and humility. This prayer, it's St. Ignatius's uh, sushi pay, um, and my, my dad attended two Jesuit schools. He went to uh, Jesuit high school, and he went to Georgetown University, so he kind of had a special affinity for Ignatius. And uh, he, he took a few of—I mentioned earlier how he would take us aside occasionally and talk to us about his religion, and this, this was an example. He told a few of us uh, about his, how much he liked this prayer and just how powerful a prayer it is and how what it asks is so kind of overwhelming. Um, So if you don't mind, I'll I'll read the prayer. Beautiful. (laughs) Take, O Lord, and receive my entire liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my whole will. All that I am and all that I possess, you have given me. I surrender it all to you to be disposed of according to your will. Give me only your love and your grace. With these, I will be rich enough and will desire nothing more. That's that's powerful. Amen. Wow. <laughs> that, that, is yeah, a, wow. that is a difficult prayer. I mean, what yeah. you are— It's a prayer what of you humility, are, yes, perfect exactly. humility. You are giving a lot up when you, when you say that prayer. And this is the prayer we actually included on the back of his uh, funeral mass card. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, he also had a great devotion to St. Thomas More mm-hmm. uh, for obvious reasons. And, uh, of course, when you're— father passed away, um, I mean, literally one of my first thoughts was, oh my gosh, this is America's Thomas More. And mm-hmm. I know that he would be first to say, oh, no, you know. mm-hmm. <laughs> he would be first to sort of testify against uh, his own Nobody. canonization. <laughs> but but I know he had a great devotion to St. Thomas More. And um, do you want to tell us yeah, he, about that? Yeah, he, uh, he saw A Man for All Seasons um, he and my mother saw it in London earlier in their early in their marriage, and it left a big impression. Obviously, he knew about Thomas More before that, but uh, seeing the play kind of really solidified things for him, I think. Um, and he he quoted the play very often. But uh, I think what Thomas More represented to him was a marriage of faith and reason, and mm-hmm. and the courage also to to 
uh, to use the cliche, to stand up for what you believe in at, at great costs. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Thomas More lost uh, lost his life because he um, took a stand for uh, Orthodox Catholic, uh, Catholic belief. And one of the points my father makes is that Thomas More resisted Henry VIII's uh, insistence that he should have the say over his ability to dissolve his marriage, um, and Thomas More insisted that the, you know, that's the that's the Pope's authority. Mm -hmm. um, and my father points out that this was unusual, kind of incredible, because a the Pope then wasn't an especially great Pope. You know, we're not mm -hmm. talking about one of the all-time greats. Mm -hmm. And secondly, uh, nobody nobody was siding with Thomas More. Uh, he was mm -hmm. he was alone, he and was so alone. yeah. So people thought that he was he was being ridiculous. Um, it's not like he had a ton of people backing him up, and he was just at the forefront. He and and a couple of other people. That, that was it. And even his wife was for a while Wait, telling and, him. And that there's he was a another fool. reason. Punishments for this kind of thing were very severe in the past. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing like uh, what we yeah, would experience and, uh, today. As, as Thomas More well knew, because uh -huh. you know he was responsible he for was. a few executions of, uh, of his own. They didn't kid around when they yeah. executed. And, and Chris, I see the book is dedicated to your mom. It is. And the quote there is from A Man for, a Man for All Seasons. Do you want to tell us why you picked that quote? Well, this is, I'm glad you asked because this is a little tricky. Uh, the quote is, uh, it's Thomas More addressing his wife in A Man for All Seasons. Why, it's a lion I married. A lion, a lion. <laughs> um, and this is towards the end of the play, I think, when he's, when, in, when his wife kind of finally stands behind him and, and supports him. In a lot of the play, she had been kind of telling him he was being foolish. Right, um, this is their final visit to yeah, him at the right. Tower of London where they're begging him to mm -hmm. yeah. go along I with the king that. in order to save his life, right? But th this was a, but so then, this is a risky quotation because um, uh, Thomas More's wife wasn't as smart as Thomas More as indicated in the play, and my mom was my dad's intellectual <laughs> peer. Oh. And my mom was also, she would tease him when they disagreed with opinions, but they were a team, and um, he wouldn't have gotten to where he was, actually, as a, the dedication of the previous book. He, he said, it, we, we took that dedication from something he said after he was nominated by uh, President Reagan. He couldn't have gotten to the court without her, and if he had, it wouldn't have been nearly as much fun. Mm -hmm. So they, wow. they were a great team. Wow. You know, one of the law clerks writes about your parents' marriage, mm -hmm. and uh, she talks about her conversion to the Catholic faith. She again says, Justice Scalia never evangelized me. Mm -hmm. I was, She was meeting privately with your brother, Father Paul Scalia, to investigate questions of the faith, but she says that the justice never spoke with her about that. or, But part of her faith journey, or one of the hurdles, was church teaching on the family. And she writes really movingly about how things finally clicked for her on that when she witnessed your family at your father's funeral mass. It, she says the most visible sign of the justice's faith was his marriage to Maureen and their nine children. And it was the most visible sign that turned me toward the church at long last. Mm -hmm. And I mean, th this quote goes on, it's just so beautiful. I'm gonna have to urge everyone to buy the book to read the rest of this quote because um, it's really moving. But My mom said something really powerful after, uh, shortly after my dad died, um, when all of my brothers and sisters were with her, she said something like, uh, um, something along the lines of nine being, not the nine of us giving her the support she needed and the comfort she needed afterwards. She couldn't imagine having any fewer. 
Well, Chris, it's it's interesting that around the table we have large families, all of us, and um, and your dad was an only child, and yeah. and to then be the head of a, a large household and also holding incredible positions and and having a lot of uh, intellectual pressure on him. What was it like growing up for you? I mean, I always think about my younger kids and how, you know, I'm slacking off <laughs> a bit on discipline. Um, but but how exciting was it growing up? And, and you talked about your parents' great unity mm-hmm. as a couple. Um, what could you share with us, some of those great memories? Well, it, it was a lot of fun. And the, the most significant thing that or the, the thing that set my family apart from families of my friends was wasn't that he was on the Supreme Court but that there were so many of us um, <laughs> it was just a big family and it was uh, it was lively and it was fun uh, and yeah um, you pointed out yeah he was an only child um, and not only was he an only child but his mom had six siblings and he was the only child of those no. uh, yeah of, of that whole family was that so, just bad luck yeah bad luck well uh, not all of them got married but the no. one even the ones that got married uh, didn't have any children so um wait this might be a silly question does the supreme court justice have uh, a very heavy work schedule all year it long? does yeah summers are a little bit lighter mm-hmm. um but but during the summers that that's when they tend to go off uh, abroad to speak or or still or teach or something like that so yeah he was busy but he always made a point of being home for dinner and that mm. was all of what a good lesson yeah about 90 <laughs> percent of my my favorite memories are from dinner time and he would tell his clerks this um something like uh you know be sure to be home for dinner because that's when the children aren't savages or something no, like that and for or, sure the clerks are having so dinner true. at 10 every yeah day, but that's right but um, several of the clerks mentioned that that yeah. he would tell them be home for dinner a yeah. regular admonition of you know his. that's a magnanimous yeah. leader somebody who looks out yeah. for the the well-being the, the whole well-being mm-hmm. of of the people that work with him and yeah. under him well and he, lives it that's the other thing. It's one thing to to have pronouncements. It's another thing to actually yeah. live them. And I should confess that, uh, you know, growing up, I didn't realize what a big deal that was. <laughs> um, you know, he could have stayed at the office much longer, but he would come. He would be home for dinner. And uh, if anything, I I didn't like it because I meant it meant sometimes we wouldn't eat dinner until like seven thirty. Um, and <laughs> you were and by, the, by the time we finished, <laughs> I had already missed like fifteen minutes of my favorite show, and that, this was before DVR. I mean, father, so what a pain! Your father <laughs> could have, with perfect justice, have told your your mother, "Don't stop nagging me. I'm yeah. running the judicial branch of the country." <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but uh, but now that I'm raising a family of my own, um, it's the significance of that uh, of that routine is really. Uh, really clear to me now and same thing with just getting us to mass every sunday it seems like such a simple thing but i i only have three children and it's it's a miracle it's a miracle you're outnumbered once you're outnumbered yeah that's true what's the uh what's the current grandchild count uh we're at we're at 39 right now oh how um, wonderful impressive two great grandkids yeah Keep in mind that, uh, you know, Father Paul hasn't contributed any. Um, <laughs> Only spiritual children. Yes, exactly. So. And is your mo- how is your mother doing? Oh, she- thank you for asking. She's doing well. Yeah. yeah. Um, she is, uh, uh, I mean, as well as you, as you mm-hmm. can expect. I mean, obviously, she misses him very much, but um, she's, she has us, and she has a lot of good friends who've been, been by her mm-hmm. over the past few years. And she has a lot to be proud of. She does. No, that is very true, and she's very proud of him. And she has a she has a very rich um, spiritual life herself. 
So that's been a huge help as well. Was she involved in, in putting together the book at all? Um, we, yes, she gave us some advice, um, and, but, you know, she let me and Ed do most of the heavy lifting. Um, and and do you want to say, um, anything about your co-editor here, uh, Ed Whalen, who was yeah. the, um, he was one of the clerks, mm-hmm. helped you with the first book, Scalia mm-hmm. Speaks, and, and now with this one as well. I know he's got yeah. a bunch of great anecdotes too from his. Yeah, Ed, uh. Ed clerked for my father in the early 90s. Um, he likes to joke about uh, it being a particularly bad term, uh, full of, of dissents, uh, mm-hmm. a couple of high-profile Was it the Casey year? And also another one that we have in this collection, Lee V. Weissman. Mm-hmm. And um, Ed only told me this recently, but uh, every, every term clerks are allowed to basically take credit for one of the opinions they drafted, and he, he drafted... Um, Levy Weissman, which is an especially good one. Hmm. Um, and by drafted, I mean he wrote the first draft of my father, you know, edited Re- it quite a bit. But um, it's it's a great opinion that has some has some really um, memorable lines in there. But um, uh, Ed is Ed was uh, a great co-editor, um, and I, you know, obviously this book wouldn't have happened without him, um, or n- neither of the books would have. And just somebody who I think understood my father very well, both uh, his legal thinking and and his uh, religious belief. You know, Andre, I know you wanted to ask about um, the, one of the forewords written by Clarence Thomas, Justice Thomas. Yeah, we touched touched upon it before, Chris, about um, the the beautiful forewords written in both of the books, the first by Justice Ginsburg and the second by Justice Thomas. And you you spoke a lot about the relationship and the friendship that that your dad and Justice Ginsburg had, and that they had a lot in common. Um, Justice Thomas and your dad, their lives were very different leading up to getting to the bench, and and yet they almost had like a brotherhood. And and Justice Thomas speaks about that. And I was wondering if you could share it just briefly, that friendship and that relationship that you observed. Can I read a passage from his foreword? Because that would be great. Uh, I, Please. I find this very, very powerful. This is towards the end of his foreword. In a sense, it was providential and certainly not probable that we would serve together. When I joined the court, I only knew of him but had never met him. He was from the Northeast while I am from the Southeast. He came from a house of educators I from a household of almost no formal education, mm. but we shared our Catholic faith and our Jesuit education as well as our sense of vocation. Our faith mattered, and so it was that our work had to matter and had to be done right. For different reasons and from different origins, we were heading in the same direction. So we walked together and worked together for a quarter century. Um, I have I have really good memories of Justice Thomas coming over for dinner, and um, I remember his laugh. I don't know if you've ever heard hmm. Justice Thomas laugh, but it, it, I would say it fills a room, but it fills a house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, too. The chambers so, of the court yeah. as well. But my, my dad used to like to, um, when, he, when he was working on an opinion and was especially pleased with a sentence, he would call up uh, Justice Thomas and say, Brother Clarence, listen to this. And he would read the hmm. sentence and, and then uh, wait for the guffaw. Mm-hmm. So they, they, you know, like, obviously they agreed on more opinions than uh, my dad did with uh, Justice Ginsburg, but they had, I think, um, again, both a wonderful friendship and a great working relationship. You know, when I read the foreword, the, the feeling that I had was that's the friendship between two Christian gentlemen. Mm-hmm. I like that. Chris, thank you so much for giving us this inside view of such an such an such a wonderful man and such a, a person who's left so much 
for us um, just Im- imprinted on the whole country, right? His personality and yeah. his beliefs and, and, and all his virtues and his apostolate. And the book again, On Faith, you can get it anywhere on Amazon or any bookstore, but it is, I have a whole stack on my bookshelf now to give for gifts. They're great graduation gifts, Father's Day, Christmas, anything. They're, it's a yeah. fantastic, it's an easy read, it's digestible, short little excerpts. You know, and not just from a family perspective, but all, or for a male perspective, a good Father's Day gift, for instance, but also so just how do we live our faith with integrity mm-hmm. in a complicated public square? What, what better, right, with courage, what better like lessons than uh, this book on faith? Thank you, Chris. Thank you all very much. It's been my pleasure. Thanks. Friends, at the Catholic Association, we're not just pretty faces with a podcast. Every morning... We review all the latest news and send our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. This week, as usual, I've picked out one or two, par- one or two of the articles that were included in the clips this week. I've picked out my own which was published in National Review Online on June 17th. It's titled, Britain Needs Its Own Mexico City Policy to Stop Funding Abortion Overseas. So you may remember that one of the first of the Trump administration's many pro-life moves was to stop funding abortion overseas. He reinstated and expanded the Mexico City policy that President Obama had canceled out in 2009. So this is really good news for us taxpayers who don't want to help the world's poor do away with their children. We would like to help them welcome their children into the world. Over in the United Kingdom, recently, uh, in January, I believe, they gave the International Plant Parenthood Federation over 130 million pounds. And now British taxpayers are wondering why their hard-earned money is going to this ethically challenged corporation, which has been recently credibly accused of organizing the, let's see, offering young volunteers as unpaid prostitutes to guests at African functions. So according to these accusations, which apparently are credible, they've been made in Kenya and they're available in Kenyan court documents, the IPPF, Planned Parenthood International, has been offering young girls as prostitutes to their guests. This is not something that the British public wants to fund. So we recommend that the British public start their own Mexico City policy and stop funding abortion overseas. Now, just today, and this is not in the TCA clips yet, but it will be because this is very big news, the Bladensburg Peace Cross case has been decided by the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has said that that the cross, which is in Maryland, should stand. It should not be taken down. American humanists, uh, a, a secular group, had asked the Supreme Court uh, to take the to to rule against this cross, which was put up by the mothers of slain World War One soldiers. It's very beautiful. It's been there for a very long time since just after World War One, and it's a very tall cross. It annoys secularists, so they've been suing and suing. It finally got all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court stood up for the cross. So I'm going to read to you from our legal eagle, Andrea Picciotti. This is her statement, uh, which is on our website. 
In saving the historic Bladensburg Peace Cross from the American humanists' bulldozers, the Supreme Court has brought common sense and clarity to this important First Amendment issue. The Constitution does not require eliminating the great symbols of America's religious pluralism from the public square. So I applaud that. That is such wonderful news. And that's the TCA Clips for this week. You can find the link to my article in National Review on the podcast show notes. To subscribe to the podcast and to the media clips, go to thecatholicassociation.org. Today we enter into a new conversation with consequence and anticipation of this Sunday's feast of the body and the blood of the Lord, Corpus Christi. In the second reading for Sunday, St. Paul echoes Jesus' words from the upper room, take and eat, this is my body, take and drink, this is my blood. Those words go back to that distressing conversation with consequences that Jesus had in Capernaum a year before the Last Supper, when after the miraculous multiplication of loaves and fish, when people were coming for another free meal, Jesus said that he is the true manna, and that if we want to enter truly into life with him, we have to gnaw on his flesh and drink his blood. These words were disgusting to most of the Jews. He couldn't touch blood without becoming ritually impure, and no one would even think about eating another human being. So when Jesus was saying you had to chew on his flesh as if you were a dog eating a bone, or not even just touch his blood but consume it within you, many of them found it as words of a cannibalistic sicko. And so even though Jesus had amazed them for two years, even though so many followers had come to him. Many of them started to go away. Jesus didn't run after him saying, no, 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 I was just talking symbolically. He knew that they had understood him appropriately and just couldn't accept that truth yet. He turned to Peter and the other disciples and said, are you too going to leave? And Peter for the apostles stood up and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know you are the Holy One of God. Those words wouldn't make sense to Peter until exactly a year later when Jesus would take bread and wine into his hands, totally change it into his body and blood and say, take and eat, take and drink. But Peter trusted in the Lord and therefore trusted in what he said and accepted that somehow Jesus would provide. Jesus continues to provide his flesh and blood to us each day. What's our response? Right before the gospel on Sunday, we will hear St. Thomas Aquinas' beautiful Laudazi on Salvatorum, the sequence to prepare us for this feast to celebrate it worthily. And in the second verse, there are some famous words, quantum potes, tantum aude, in Latin, however much you can, that much dare to do. We're supposed to give our best in response to Jesus' giving of himself in an existential conversation with us. How do we do that? First is through our hunger, praying spiritual communions, trying to seek Jesus more and more by our purity, never daring to receive Jesus with an impure heart, but taking advantage of the sacrament of confession by which Jesus himself forgives us through the hands of the same priest through whom he gives us his body and blood. Love, particularly in spending time with him in adoration, praise, celebrating him publicly like so many do in Corpus Christi procession, giving him priority, making him the source and the summit, not just of our week on Sunday, but to the extent that we can each day.
Jesus says to us in this conversation with consequence, this is my body, this is my blood. However much we can do in response, we're called to dare to do so that our entire life might first be an amen to this gift and then a commentary on the words of consecration as we say to others, this is my body, this is my blood, this is my sweat, these are my tears, this is all I am and have given out of love for you. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry, for preparing us for this Sunday's Mass. Uh, always such a treat from the brilliant Father Landry. So that was a wonderful time that we spent with Chris Scalia talking to us about his father, the late Justice Antonin Scalia, and the way that for three decades he defended this, our valuable American tradition of allowing religion in the public square and not what we've been seeing so much recently, the way that secularism these days uh, is demanding that religion be scrubbed, just totally scrubbed out of, of uh, the vestige of, of religion should be just leached out of all our society, and that's a difficult place to live. Well, this book, Gracie, that we were um, talking about really is just a treasure of inspiration and reflects the courage that Justice Scalia had as a Catholic in, uh, in very much in the public eye. And one of the things that I was most struck and thought was beautiful in one of the speeches that he gave, I'm going to read from it, Justice Scalia says, when the values of Christ and of the world are so divergent, so inevitably divergent, we should not feel surprised if we find ourselves now and then out of step. And it, it's clear maybe, that... Maybe we're ought, we ought to find ourselves significantly out of step. Well, right? and, and what's beautiful about it is Christ's footsteps are always kind of out of step mm-hmm. of what uh, the world is, is pulling us towards. But if we follow in those footsteps, we eventually, hopefully, will get to heaven. And, and the late justice's journey was is an exemplary one and, and clearly showed that he lived a long and distinguished life as an American You know, believer. and also as a, state, a man of great faith, a deep faith, and also fully engaged. But, you know, what, one final thought I had is, you know, it's kind of easy for us to talk about the, the man of Antonin Scalia as a public figure. But having had this conversation with his son, Chris, um, it just strikes me so much how, um, how much of a personal loss this continues to be for their family. And I really wanted to express on behalf of all of us our condolences for their loss because, um, I mean, it, it, the hurt doesn't go away. I'm sure that they miss him terribly. And um, anyway, God rest his soul. Well, and and beautiful that his children and his wife continue to carry on that wonderful legacy of faith and an example, personal example. That's right. Well, thank you to all our listeners for joining us for another hour of Conversations with Consequences. If you have a question or a topic that you'd like us, that you think would be fun to cover, you can reach us at thecatholicassociation.org. You can follow us on Twitter at at ConvosTCA. And uh, we can't wait to hear from you. And stay tuned for um, much more wonderful conversation coming up.